Uh, it has been called the question that never goes away. It may be humanity's oldest question. And it is a question that always shows up on the heels of tragedy. Whenever tragedy strikes in your life, in somebody else's life, out in culture, uh, this is the question that always follows on the heels of tragedy. Uh, this is the question that we ask in response to acts of injustice, whether acts of injustice committed against us or acts of injustice committed about, you know, committed to someone else. Uh, this is the question that lingers long with victims who are, uh, you know, been perpetrated by violence or by, by some form of abuse. This is, this is a question that people always end up asking. Uh, this is a question that come, uh, comes in the hours after an unwanted, unexpected diagnosis. You can always count on it. Uh, as soon as you get home from the doctor's office, you walk in, sooner or later, you're gonna begin asking this question. This is the question that always comes in the wake of a premature death. The premature death of someone you love, someone you cared about, a friend, a family member, a son, or a daughter. Uh, this is the question that all of us wrestle with when we look around at the world that we live in and we see all the things that are going on both close to home and far away. The question that we ultimately all end up asking in some shape, form, or fashion is this right here. It's why. It's the question that won't go away. It's the question that humanity has been asking since we left the garden. And sometimes it sounds like this, why did that happen to me? Why did this have to happen to me? Why did that happen to my son? Why did this have to be my daughter? Why did they get cancer? Why did they die in the car crash? Why did they hurt me? Why did they betray me? Why this suffering? Why all of this pain? And we see a natural disaster a world away and we say, why? Why in the world would something like that happen? We see another mass shooting happen in our nation and inevitably, the question is, why? The chances are that somewhere in your life, somewhere in your heart, somewhere in your mind, just like in my life and in my mind and my heart, we all have our own why that we wrestle with. And the reason that we wrestle with this question called why is because we want there to be an explanation to things. We want things to be explainable. We want things that happen to other people that we care about. We want things that happen in the world. We want things that happen to us. We want things to be explainable. We want an explanation to why things happen because for some reason, and whatever that reason is, I'm not sure, but for some reason, we all just naturally believe that there is an explanation, that there should be an explanation to why the things that happen actually happen. And because we believe that there should be an explanation, we have latched on to a belief. We have latched on to a statement that sounds true, but it's not entirely true. And that's the statement we're gonna talk about today. And it's this right here. Everything happens for a reason. Perhaps you believe that right now. Perhaps, you know, you have been told that by someone. Christians love to use this as a means of consolation or comfort. Somebody is going through suffering. They're going through pain. There's a premature death. There's cancer. And someone says, you know, I know it's a difficult time, but everything happens for a reason. As though that's supposed to make things better, as though that's supposed to make us all feel better. But yet we just latch onto that because we want there to be an explanation to things from the small things to the big things, but particularly the big things. We want an explanation to those things. And, and if you're a thinking person and you're sitting there, like I would be sitting there, I know what you're thinking. But that is true. And it is true to an extent. There is such a thing as the law of cause and effect. And if you wanna know more about that, you can read in a science book all about that. And, and that's true. It is a law of the universe, cause and effect. That's absolutely true. 
Then there's this thing called the law of sowing and reaping. And you say, hey, you know, what about that? Well, that's absolutely true as well. And if you want to know more about that, you can read about it in a science book, but also you can read about it in the scripture. But when Christians typically say everything happens for a reason, the thing that makes it untrue, though it appears to be true, is most often what we mean when we say it. We're just not saying everything happens for a reason, but it's the intent behind what we say. It's the inference of what people hear when we say everything happens for a reason, which makes this statement not entirely true. But this is a statement that Christians love because we believe that we should be able to explain what seems unexplainable. Something happens and you have no good logical explanation for why it happened. So in order to answer the question why, you go to this. Well, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And this is our attempt to explain the unexplainable because we feel like there should be no unexplainable things that happen in the universe and no unexplainable things that happen to us. That's one way we use the statement to explain the unexplainable. But I think even worse, we use the statement many times as a way to escape personal responsibility as a way to escape a personal responsibility. We say, you know what, I messed up, you know, I screwed up, but you know what, you, you know, when you really think about things, even though I screwed up and even though I messed up, everything happens for a reason. So there's a reason why I screwed up. I'm not really to blame. I don't really have responsibility in this. And so this is a statement that Christians use to blame God. People use this to blame karma. People use this to blame fate. People use this to blame the laws of chemistry and physics that operate in our universe. This is just, this is just a means many times to obfuscate responsibility. Yeah, I messed up, but you know, before you get so angry, everything happens for a reason, as though I didn't have a choice, as though I was compelled to do what I did, even though it was wrong. And because I was compelled to do what was wrong, ultimately it's not as wrong. Everything happens for a reason. So I can't be entirely responsible for what I've done. And so we use this statement. Christians use this statement. Well-meaning Christians use this statement to escape responsibility because we all want a bigger, deeper reason for the things that happen to us and for the things that happen around us. You, you've heard this before, you've experienced this firsthand. You're, you're driving up 75 North, you're heading to Lexington and for some reason you expect the traffic on 75 North to be good, but it's not. And so there you are, even though you vetted it on Facebook and you tweeted out, anybody give me a road report? Anybody let me know what it's like from Mount Vernon up to Richmond, can anybody tell me? And, 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 but yet, you know, there you go and there you're stuck in traffic and you're completely shocked, shocked I say, to be sitting in traffic. You've got a carload full of friends, spiritual friends, God-loving friends and someone from the back seat says, don't cuss, don't get angry. There must be a reason for this. We might be being protected from a fatal car accident. Well, that could be true but it's probably not. It could be that they decided to work during daylight hours instead at night when less people are driving. Could be that. Could be that people just automatically become idiots when they see flashing lights on the side of the road. It could be any of those things, but yet we want a bigger, deeper reason. Why do you think we're really sitting here in traffic? I wonder what this is really about. And that's how we operate. It's, it's the husband who forgot that he forgot to put gas in the car. 
And then he got in the car with his wife and he's driving down the road. And before he could tell her that he forgot, that he forgot to put gas in the car, the engine goes out and he pulls over onto the shoulder and she looks at him and says, what's going on? What's wrong? What's wrong with the car? And he says, honey, I forgot to put gas in the car. And she looks at him and she goes, how could you be so stupid? He says, but don't get so upset, honey. Just think about this. Everything happens for a reason. Yes, the reason is you're a moron, right? I mean, it's just our way of trying to escape responsibility. It's the teen who gets pregnant and says, God, how could you do that? It's the mass shooting. We turn it on television and someone's holding a microphone and someone gets interviewed and someone says, I don't understand how this could be part of the master plan. As though it is part of the master plan. It's the mother in South Carolina a couple years ago who killed her children. In her own testimony, she says, then she screamed, oh my God, what have I done? And in her next breath, she said, God, how could you let me do this? So here's my question. Does God put a nail in the middle of the road so that someone drives over it, gets a flat, has to pull off on the side of the road that slows traffic and eventually stops traffic to keep someone from a wreck they were intended to be in? Does God do that? Does God arrange computer crashes to frustrate you and to teach you humility? Does God arrange car crashes? Does God arrange plane crashes? Does God give people cancer? Does God send tragedy? Because it seems to me that when many Christians say everything happens for a reason, they usually use some variation of this statement, which all means the same thing, that they ultimately believe that no matter what happens, God is responsible. They say things like this, God is up to something. Someone sits down, they start crying, and they tell them about the diagnosis and the person doesn't know what else to say and they just say, well, God must be up to something. There's a premature death and one of your well-intended, you know, meaning friends comes up to you and they say, well, God doesn't make mistakes. God took them. He needed another angel. Time out. God does not turn people to angels. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop tweeting it. Please stop Facebooking it. Please stop Instagramming a picture of an angel and saying it. That's not what happens. We say things that are so dumb and untrue because we don't know better. We look at somebody who's going through an absolutely horrible, painful, horrific time and we say, God must really trust you in order to let you go through this. To which that person, I wish God didn't trust me at all. See, the problem with everything happens for a reason and believing what we actually mean behind what we say is the fact that this ultimately can derail faith. And more specifically, and even more dangerous, this can change and corrupt the way that you think about your heavenly father. That it can actually cause you to begin to question the character and the goodness of God when you mean that God is responsible, that God is up to something, that God doesn't make a mistake, that God caused it, that God sent it, when you actually say that, you're actually standing to corrupt your healthy image of God and idea of God and replace it with a very unhealthy idea and image of God. Because here's the thing, we're all susceptible to this. We're all susceptible to this. 
It wasn't long ago, Allison and I started noticing spots on Grayson. And, and they were just abnormal spots. They, they were more than birthmarks and they were not really moles, but I, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I'm not medically trained, but, but I'm a hypochondriac and I'm concerned enough about any spot on your body that's not normal. And, and so I was, I was kind of concerned about it and I, I didn't know better and I was concerned. And then I could tell by the way that Allison looked at those spots that she knew better and she was concerned because she was the doctor and she knew all the things that this could be from something that was completely insignificant to something that was extremely significant and life-altering. And so, you know, she began to research and she began to pay attention and she just began to just think about Grayson's overall health and, and just his development and all these things. And so she's not a pediatrician, so we took Grayson to the pediatrician. He's an incredibly intelligent guy. And after visiting the pediatrician, he decided that that all of this was concerning enough to warrant a trip to the University of Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, one of the best children's hospitals in, in all the nation. I don't know if you as a mom or a dad has, have ever experienced that in-between time of when you think that your son or daughter may be sick and that time before you find out if they are really sick or not. I don't know if you've ever been in that limbo and how excruciating that can be and how difficult it can be to be positive and, and how you just, you know, you begin to let your mind race to think, oh my gosh, you know, what they think it could be if this is true, this, this, is, this is horrible, this is terrible, this is tragic. And, and so, you know, in between the days of waiting for the appointment and actually driving to Children's Hospital, I'm sure Allison was thinking some of the same things, you know, I'm not talking out loud, I'm trying to process all of this in and I'm thinking about, if Grayson has what they think that he has, and I began to race to the question, why? Why? Why is this? And, and automatically, I begin to try to become part of the explanation. God, is this because of me? God, is, is this to teach me something? God, are you doing this? Are, is there some sin in my life that I've not confessed, that I've, I've not said I'm sorry for? God, is it because I did that? God, is it because I said that? Is this because of a few years ago? Is this because of that? God, what are you doing? Why is this? God, am I arrogant? I don't think that I'm arrogant. Are you trying to teach me humility? Are you gonna give my son this disease in order to bring me back to you, to, to humble me? God, why would you do this? Why, 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 why? Because that's what we do. That's how we try to make sense of things. This is where we naturally go. And in doing so, we don't realize we're doing it. We are losing the idea that God is good and God only does good. That our heavenly father, even though he controls everything, listen, lean in. Even though our heavenly father controls everything, not everything is caused by him. And that is an important distinction. That is an important distinction that will help protect your faith and grow your faith. That God controls everything, but God does not cause everything that happens. And so we're brought back to the question, why? What is the reason then? To say that God is always responsible takes us all down a logically indefensible path because God did not inspire original sin. God did not inspire the original sin in the Garden of Eden and God has not inspired subsequent sins after the Garden of Eden. God is presented as a God who is completely good and only does good. We are presented with the idea of a heavenly father and God who is all powerful, but yet at the same time, he is all good. He is in control of everything, but he is not the direct cause of everything. You say, okay, so then what is the reason then 
why things happen. Well, when you open up the scriptures, there's not an emotionally satisfying answer. There's not a systematic answer that puts a nice, clean presentation together and puts a bow on top of it to say, hey, this is why things happen. Matter of fact, if you open up the scripture, you're gonna find many, many explanations to why things happen, that things can happen for different reasons. Here's what we discover. We discover when we open up the pages of the scripture in the Old Testament, that a world is a world of sin, and it is a universe of natural laws. That we live in a world of sin and a world that's governed by you know, natural laws. That's what we find. The scriptures teach us about the creation of the world and subsequently about the corruption of the creation of the world. That when sin entered into the world, everything came off the rails. Everything that God created that was good was now wounded and marred and cursed. Every single one of us is born with this incredible thing. It's powerful. It's called choice and the freedom of our choice. That you have will to do or not do. You have the choice to say yes or to say no. You have the choice to bless or to curse, to wound or to heal. But yet inside this world that's governed by free choice, it's also governed by natural properties and natural laws. The same water, the same water that God created to sustain life, if you hold somebody underwater long enough, that same water because of its properties can take life. We are introduced into the scriptures, into this world where there's pain, there's heartache, there's grief, there's disease, there's loss and there's death and it's presented as an inevitable part of the human experience an inevitable part of the human experience. But yet every time any of those things happened, we are shocked. We are surprised. They are presented as part of the inevitable human experience for both those who follow after Christ and those who do not, for the believer and for the non-believer. We don't like it, but that's what it is. Sometimes things happen because they're self-inflicted wounds. I did it to myself. I don't like that but it was my choice, it was my attitude, it was my behavior, I did it to myself. Sometimes somebody else did it to me. I didn't ask for it, I didn't want it. It was a wound that was inflicted at the hands of someone else. Sometimes that's why things happen. Sometimes the scripture says it's the enemy. It's our spiritual foe that he did that. He infiltrated, he invaded. Sometimes it's just the choices and consequences of previous generations playing out in the present. And then sometimes it's God's direct involvement. And most of the time we hardly ever know where it truly falls because we are in a world of sin and there is free choice and there are natural laws. And because of it, I have a natural bent to hurt me and a natural bent to hurt you and you have a natural bent to hurt you and to hurt me. It is part of the natural human experience. So you say, where does that leave us? Where where does that take us? Ultimately, we conclude that everything that happens, everything that happens is ultimately either arranged by God or allowed by God. It is ultimately either arranged by God or allowed by God. You say, Trevor, that does not make me feel any better. It's not intended to. Truth doesn't always make us feel better. Truth is not always emotionally satisfying. And the fact that it lacks emotional satisfaction is not to make us determine whether or not we think it's true or not. God either arranged it or he allowed it. Does it really matter which one? 
Does it matter if it was arranged by God directly or God allowed it to happen because of free choice and the natural laws of the universe and choices have consequences and sowing and reaping and cause and effect and so on and so forth? Does it really matter? Should we spend our time with why? Should we spend our time thinking everything happens for a reason, but what we really mean is to say that God directly caused that? Too many Christians believe that everything is orchestrated and micromanaged by God. Things do happen by random chance. It happens under the canopy of cause and effect. It happens under the laws of chemistry and physics, but randomness does exist within the universe. There are real unforeseen accidents, and sometimes there are no theological explanations for why it happened. Yet God, this is the important part, Yet God works within all of those happenings to ultimately accomplish his purposes. Nothing, no person, no thing, no choice, no action, not me, not you, can thwart any of the purposes of God. That God can work within whatever is happening to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And that's the God that we're presented to in the scripture. This is the God that Jesus presented us to. Matter of fact, Jesus was asked this question. Why do things happen, Jesus? What's the reason? One day they came up to Jesus and they asked him about a current event. They asked him about two current events. They said, Jesus, did you hear about, you know, those Galileans that got slaughtered the other day? It was horrible. It was, it was just, it was violent. It was bloody. Did you hear about that? Jesus said, yeah, I heard about that. Does it make the people in those towns that got killed in that violent way, does that mean they were guilty of something that the next town over was not guilty of? And then they said, Jesus, did you hear about, you know, the tower? The tower over in Siloam, it was a construction project, it was a current event, and the tower fell down and 18 people died because of it. It was tragic. Did you hear about that, Jesus? Yes. Does that mean that they are worse sinners in Siloam than they are in Jerusalem? Because that happened there and it didn't happen here. Jesus, why did that happen? What's the reason? And here's, this is big. This is, we hardly ever talk about this, but this, this was so, so genius of Jesus. Here, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to both of those instances, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And here's what Jesus was saying. I'm not gonna answer your why. I'm not gonna tell you the reason. Do I know the reason? I think Jesus knew the reason. I think Jesus knew the reason for everything. Jesus knew all things. Did Jesus know the why? Did Jesus know the reason? Yes, he did. Did he decide to tell them what the reason was? No, he didn't. He said, but here's what I will tell you. As a bystander, as an onlooker of those tragedies, here's what I wanna ask you. Are you ready when tragedy comes to you? Are you ready when randomness happens to you? Are you ready when the accident happens to you? Are you ready when the uninvited, the unwanted, the unplanned, are you ready when it happens to you? Jesus said, I'm not gonna get into a debate about the past and the cause. I wanna talk to you about the consequences of what happened and what could come of it. I wanna talk about the potential redemptive purposes of what happened in those tragedies. There was another instance in Jesus's life. Jesus came across a man who was born blind, right? Because all throughout history, people have thought if bad things happen to people, it must be because they've done something bad. And the Jewish people were some of the worst to believe that. They always thought that sin caused these particular diseases and Jesus came across a man born blind. And his disciples, they decided to ask a theological question. They decided to ask the why, for what reason? They said, Jesus, for what reason is this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Now think about how just ludicrous their question was. 
Jesus, he was born blind. Was it his sin? Did he? Apparently, they thought he must have sinned in utero. He kicked her too hard. He caused some of the worst heartburn ever. Right? Was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? And then Jesus, here's how he answered the question. Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sin. But this happened so that the work of God may be displayed in him. Are his parents sinners? Yeah. Is he a sinner? Yeah. Was it sin that caused it? No. It was just that the work of God may be put on display. Jesus, you're not answering our question. No, I'm not. Because Jesus is teaching us that the best question isn't why, but rather to what end? To what end will this happen? Jesus doesn't want us to look back and to figure out the cause. Jesus wants us to entertain the consequences of what we can do with what's happening in real time in the present right in front of us in this moment. He doesn't want us to worry about why, for what reason. He says, no, I want you to think about to what end. I want you to think about what can come of what's happening right now. How can you best respond to what is happening right now in real time? How can you respond right now that in the end of all of this, it will matter. So I want you to think about the consequences and not the cause. Because Jesus is reminding us that maybe, just maybe, against the backdrop of pain and suffering, evil, and all things that are bad, against the backdrop of bad, God can show up and in the midst of that can make good become center stage. That against the backdrop of bad, God can bring good to the forefront. Jesus is saying perhaps it's possible that God can take the brokenness of your story and my story and use it to tell his story in a greater way. And there's one story in the scripture that does exactly that. The biography of one man who does exactly that is the story of Joseph. And if you don't know anything about Joseph, that's okay. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob, who was the son of a guy by the name of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of a guy by the name of Abraham. Jacob had 12 sons. And Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And the reason that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son was because Joseph was born to Jacob's favorite wife. Now time out, here's a free application for all the men in the room right now. It is one thing to have a favorite son. It is another entirely different thing to have a favorite wife. So thou shalt not have a favorite wife. It never works out well. So he had a favorite son by his favorite wife. It was a dysfunctional family, just like yours. So how did you know my family's dysfunctional? Because I've got one. All right, we're all born into it. He had a dysfunctional family. Some of Joseph's brothers slept with his father's concubines. Yeah, I know, right? Oh. It was dysfunctional. It was a jealousy, jealous family, petty family, violent family. It was all that. And the brothers hated Joseph because his father loved him so much. And so one day, Joseph was out near where his brothers were. And this is a story that some of us have heard, some of us haven't. But it's one of the great stories of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. It says for Joseph's brothers, it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, Right? Families are not supposed to hate each other. Families are supposed to love each other. But you know that's not always true. I know that's not always true. And the Bible is raw. It is real. It doesn't give us any illusions of grandeur about what life may be like 
No, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. It was a verbally abusive home and house to live in. Joseph showed up and it says, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that Joseph wore. And they took him and they throw him into a pit. The pit was empty because there was no water in it. Now we read through those verses and we miss all the emotion of it. We, we miss all the heinous activity that's going on there. We miss how all of these brothers ganged up They jumped their brother who is 17 years old. He is a teenager. They jump him, they beat him, they abuse him, they strip him. They have murder in their heart, rage comes to the surface. They despise this person. They're trying to cause him injury. They're trying to hurt him. If we saw this play out on a video on social media, our stomachs would turn. If we saw a clip of this on the nightly news, our stomachs would turn. If we saw this in flesh, in person, our stomachs would turn. This is what this is. It doesn't bother us because some know the end of the story. But this was heinous. This was horrible. But this was Joseph's life. This was his family. Families are supposed to be a place that are safe. Families are supposed to be a place where you're loved, not hated. It's supposed to be where you're protected, not abused. But this was Joseph's family and some of you know exactly what that type of family is like. This is injustice. He is a victim of injustice. An act of injustice that would leave a scar for the rest of his life. And you would think that they would have some humanity about them, his brothers. But it says right after they threw him into a pit, it says, And they sat down to eat their meal and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. They just about killed their brother and then they decided, hey, we're hungry, let's have lunch. This is is horrible. And so ultimately they meet these Ishmaelites and they decide to sell their brother into slavery. This is a story of human trafficking. There's nothing new under the sun. His family, his brothers sold him as a slave. And as a matter of fact, they, they only got, you know, what a handicapped slave in those days sold for. They just, they, they, they trafficked their brother, this defenseless kid, a 17-year-old, who did nothing to deserve this, who did nothing to ask for this. Nobody deserves anything like this. If you think anybody in any circumstance deserves something like this, you have got bigger problems than what we're talking about today. Nobody deserves this. But that's what happened to him. And he's sold into slavery. And I can imagine if I were him and if you were him, because I'm human and you're human, as he was sent into the caravan of Ishmaelites and set in the back of some wagon and perhaps in post-traumatic stress and having some type of an event emotionally that's going on in that moment as any person would have to what just happened to him. I can see him shaking. I can see him quivering. I can see him weeping. And I can see him at some point in that moment wrestling with why, 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 why God? And the follow-up to why God is God, where are you? I thought, you know, you're supposed to be a protector. What about that whole no weapon against me shall prosper thing? What about my hedge, my protector, my fortress, my strong tower, my rock? What about all of that? God, where are you? You would have thought it. I would have thought it. And Joseph undoubtedly thought it. And the text knew that we would wonder, and the text knew that Joseph was wrestling with this. So in the very next breath, as he goes to Egypt, 
and he sold as a slave to a guy by the name of Potiphar. This is what the scriptures say. The Lord was with Joseph. Didn't look like the Lord was with Joseph. Probably didn't feel like to Joseph that the Lord was with Joseph, but there he was in the middle of the bad, in the middle of the tragic, in the midst of the pain and the suffering, the unwanted, the undesired, the unprayed for, the undeserved. Right there he is. He's with him. It says so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. There, there, there's so many different things we could talk about Joseph. It says that when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, he, he was promoted. Joseph is this incredible young man who decides, you know what? I'm not gonna be defined by my context. I am gonna rise above my context. And so he decided not to try to change the circumstances because he couldn't. He was gonna adjust to it and he was gonna respond to it in real time the best he could. He couldn't undo it, couldn't change it, but he decided in real time to respond to it the best that he could. And he didn't allow his circumstances to change his belief about the fact that his heavenly father was good and only did good. Now, I think perhaps while he's there in Potiphar's house, did he have flashbacks? Did he cry? Did he have nightmares? Did he think about all that? I'm sure he did. Who wouldn't? But he still tries to respond the best he can. And while he's responding the best he can, one day Potiphar's wife says, hey, I want, I want, I want, you're a good looking guy, want, let's go have sex. You belong to us, you're, you're, you're our slave. And Joseph knew that he was accountable to his God, his creator. And he knew that he was gonna respond in that moment the best that he could. And so he said no, and he ran off. But before he ran off, she grabbed his robe and his robe fell off of him. And there she was holding his robe. For, I mean, Joseph had a terrible time keeping a robe. It, it, was, it was, every time you find him, he's losing a robe. He needed a belt. And, and so there she is holding the robe. She's, she's insulted by the fact he wouldn't have sex with her. And so she blames she says, hey, he raped me. He raped me. Wasn't true, but she lied. And when you're a slave, when you're part of a class of people that's constantly exercised prejudice against, when you're part of a class or people or part of a group of people that's always maligned by the greater public, you never get the benefit of the doubt. And so, says Joseph's master, took him and put him in prison. That was his payday for doing the right thing. The palace where the king's prisoners were confined, but while Joseph was in prison, there he was. For doing the right thing, he's in prison. And you know what you would have wondered? You know what I would have wondered? Why? Why God, when, I, when, I try, when I'm trying to get this right, did you see what I did? I said, no. God, where are you? And again, the writer says, the Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So again, in real time, he's responding the best he can to what's happening in front of him. He meets two new friends, a baker and a cupbearer. They worked for Pharaoh, then Pharaoh got mad at him, put him in prison. Those two guys had a dream. Joseph was listening to them talk about their dream. They couldn't figure out what their dream meant. And Joseph, he had some experience with dreams. And Joseph said, hey, let me take a crack at interpreting your all's dreams. He said, cupbearer, tell me what your dream was. And he, Cupbearer told him the dream and Joseph said, ah, I know what that means. I got good news. In three days, you're gonna be released from prison. You're gonna go back to work for Pharaoh. And the cupbearer's like, yes. The baker's shaking his hand. Congratulations, man, that's awesome. Hey, cupbearer says, I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear what's in store for you. Joseph, tell, tell my buddy what's coming for him. And Joseph looks at the baker and says, well, mm, in three days, you're gonna be executed. 
I don't know why Joseph couldn't have just lied. I would have just lied. Brother, it's all gonna be okay. But don't worry, everything happens for a reason. But he told him. And so it happened. So the cupbearer, he's getting ready to leave prison. Joseph sees it as an opportunity. Again, Joseph's not being defined by circumstances, but he's trying to respond the best he can in the midst of all the pain and the hurt and the horror of it all. He looks at the cupbearer and says, hey, but when things go well with you, when you're up there and you're doing your job again, remember me, show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Then he tells him his story. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. He goes through all this story and tells him, I don't deserve to be here. He says, so get me out of here. It says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that hurt. Two years go by. Two long years. It's been 13 years since he got sold into slavery. 13 years of this. But Joseph decides not to become bitter, not to become cynical. He decides to be faithful in the present season that he's in, even though the present season he's in hurts. Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. There's seven skinny cows and seven plus-size cows that show up in Pharaoh's dream, right? And and the seven skinny cows eat the seven big cows, and and nobody can figure it out. And so the cupbearer remembers Joseph, and so Joseph shows up, and Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph says, I know what that means. That means there's going to be seven good years of great harvest, followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. You need to take the seven good years and you need to set grain back and you need to save grain. So when the seven years of famine come along, you'll have grain in storage and you'll be able to sell people grain so that they will not starve. And Pharaoh says, oh my gosh, that's genius, that's awesome. You're gonna run it for me. And he promoted Joseph to be prime minister of Egypt, second in command. And that's gonna be his job for the next 14 years to oversee this project. Famine reaches Canaan, the land where Joseph came from. Jacob, Joseph's fathers, gets Joseph's brothers, brings them into the room and says, there's famine, but we hear that there's grain and wheat in Egypt, go buy some. And it's an incredible story and you should read it on your own. But his brothers go to Egypt to buy grain. Who knows if they've even thought about Joseph in years. And as God would allow it, or as God would arrange it, they ended up in front of their brother to buy grain. They didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized his brothers. He had a little fun with them. He wanted to find out if they were still the same guys that had done to him what had been done to him 20 or so years before. But at the end of this incredible story, Joseph does the unthinkable. He reveals himself to his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. I am the one that you sold off into slavery. And Joseph, with the wounds ripped open again, forgives them. And not only does he forgive them in that moment for abusing him, beating him, stripping him, and throwing him in the pit, but in that moment, he forgives them for every subsequent thing that happened because of that. He forgave them in that moment for becoming a slave in Potiphar's house. He forgave them that he was a slave that was wrongfully accused of rape and thrown in prison. He forgave them of that. 
And while he was in prison, and the only reason that he was in prison was because he was accused of rape, and the only reason he was accused of rape was because he was a slave, and the only reason that he was a slave was because they'd sold him into slavery, he was there and he got forgotten. And he forgave them for all of it. And it's emotional and it's raw. And Joseph, his brothers, could not comprehend how he could forgive them for their actions. And for many of us, it's hard for us to really understand how Joseph could do such a thing. But Joseph tells us, and here's what Joseph said. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but in a different way. In real time, God meant it for good. Joseph, what are you saying? Was it your brothers that intended to do evil or was it God who intended to do good? Yes. Joseph, are you saying that God arranged it or are you saying that God allowed it? Yes, it doesn't matter. Because as you intended to harm me, as you intended to do evil against me, as you intended to kill me, God meant it for good so that many would be saved. And here's what Joseph was saying. I don't know why it all happened. You meant evil, but God meant good. I, I can't make sense of it all. I don't know the why, I don't know the reason, but here's what I do know. The one constant through it all was God. The one constant through all the chaos was my heavenly father. He was always with me. And here's what I know, and this is important. God didn't inspire the bad for the sake of good, but God overcame the bad for the sake of good. Your good, my good, and the good of so many other people. God overcame the bad. God didn't use the bad, God didn't inspire the bad, but God overcame the bad for good, with good. And this can be hard to believe when you're in the middle of it. This can be hard to believe in the middle of what it is that you're going through. It can be hard to believe that as you sit crying in a pile of ashes, that God can take those ashes and make them beautiful. It's hard to believe in the moment that God can take the ruins of everything that's been destroyed and build back something beautiful and lasting and eternal. It's hard to believe that God can take your tears and wipe them away and turn them for joy in the morning. It's difficult to believe that God can take the heaviness and actually bring praise out of it. It's hard to believe that God can take your mourning and actually turn it to laughter. But that's exactly what Jesus' followers are called to believe because we believe that Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, showed up on the planet. He took his own medicine. He experienced the human dilemma. He experienced the pain and the suffering and the betrayals. A man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. But at the cross and on Easter Sunday, he overcame sin and he overcame death and he does it still today in your life in my life every day he can overcome it and it can be hard to believe in the moment but that's exactly what we're called to believe Paul wrote to Christians 
all around the Roman world who was going through difficult trials. And this is what he said, because of Jesus, we know, not that we feel, but we know that God causes all things to work together. Talk to me, what is this word? For good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, the constant in the midst of the chaos and the change is your heavenly father. And he is only good and he does only good. He controls it all and at the same time, he only does good. He is present with you. And in some way that we can't even know and we can't even see, he is working within even that which he did not inspire, even that which he did not cause, even in that which he allowed, he's working in it for your good and mine and for the good of those around us. God may leave us in the dark as to the why, but God will not leave us in the dark alone. He will be with us. God may leave you in the dark as to the why, but he will never leave you in the dark alone. He will be in the dark with you. And right now, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, he is with you. Father, help us not to obsess about the reason or the why. God, ultimately we confess that you arranged or you allowed, but God, it doesn't matter because you are working within what's happening to accomplish good. You're taking ashes and you're making beauty out of them. You're taking ruins and you're building something. You're taking our mourning and you're turning it to laughter. You're taking our heaviness and you're giving us praise. So God, help us to hold on to nothing else today other than maybe just the fact that where we are right now, you are with us. And for right now, that's enough. Because you are with us, because you are for us. And you're working it.